0: This week's TribCast is sponsored by the Eller Group. The Eller Group delivers best-in-class crisis, litigation, and public affairs communications. Learn more about our approach at ellergroup.com. And Raise Your Hand Texas believes the future of Texas, our community's economy, and citizenry, depends on how well we prepare all students. Meet your Regional Advocacy Director, sign up for our newsletter, and get involved at raiseyourhandtexas.org backslash advocacy.
1: Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for April 29th, 2022. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News for the Trib. And this week it's a, a very special edition of the Tribcast. It's uh, Ross Ramsey's Goodbye Tribcast. Ross, our co-founder and executive editor for 13, almost 13 years. He is on his way out. This is one of his last official duties as a Texas Tribune-er, Tribby, as, as we call ourselves welcome Ross Ross thanks for joining us Uh, well howdy
2: and so long and thanks for all the fish
1: yeah so the hope here was to just you know give us one more excuse to talk politics we're gonna go big picture here and I figured you know who better to bring along than uh, Ross's co-founder Evan Smith hey Evan
3: I I thought I was coming on to talk about Willie Nelson's birthday today Actually, this is about Ross. I'm kind of tired of talking
2: about Ross. Yeah, so's so Ross. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and then, uh, you know, to okay, boomer, y'all, uh, we've we brought in Alexa, uh, Alexa Uda as well, demographics <laughs> reporter. Hey, Alexa.
4: I'm here in appreciation. Ross just gave us his last trip cast howdy. Indeed. All the feelings. Also, Indeed.
2: technically, I think Ross is older than a boomer, isn't he? Or Willie Nelson, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm actually. The, I the, I was born in the peak year of the boom.
4: Wait, you're older than Willie Nelson. No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> but
2: thanks for buying it. Though. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. I, on s-
4: on some days I'm it seems like it. Let's catch you up there for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> All
1: right, so Ross, it's gonna be a long half hour. <laughs> yeah. We uh, the 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 number the 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 stat that people keep bringing up that I'm sure you just love is four decades in Texas journalism, right? But so um,
4: you are older than Willie Nelson.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I've been doing journalism longer than Willie Nelson. That's indeed,
1: true. Indeed. <laughs> um, but you you first kind of came to Austin the capital in the in 89 the which is Clements right he was governor <coughs> Clements, at the time
2: Clements is governor Bill Hobby is the lieutenant governor Gib Lewis is the speaker the issue of the day is workers compensation insurance and I'd been on the business desk of the Times Herald so they said send, send a business writer down there um, and it was fun it was a you know i mean it was a sem- it was a pretty boring subject but it was a cage match between the business people who were at that time the main funders of the Republican Party in Texas, and the trial lawyers who were then the main funders of the Democratic Party in Texas. So it was sort of like a proxy war between those two, and it was a great introduction to politics.
1: And it's interesting because now here we are as you leave the Republican Party fighting with business communities over all different kinds of things, including voting and and you know trans issues and LGBTQ issues. It's, uh, I mean, that feels like one of the biggest... Shifts maybe something that maybe would surprise you the most. You know, fast forwarding up here, right?
2: Well, yeah, ish, yes, ish. Uh, we had the religious right back in those days, and we had the Jerry Falwells and the Paul Wyricks and all of that kind of stuff. And, and a lot of that was manifesting in Texas. And in fact, the Texas Republican Party was at that time split between what were then called the religious conservatives and the uh, business conservatives. You know, sort of the Chamber of Commerce types, and that you know, was sort of the pupa stage of the fractures that are here now.
4: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Interesting. So, I mean, another part of this is, you know, where the allegiances have gone, right? And we, 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 talk about the business community, but I mean also we just see the, the leadership of this state so closely tied to the former president, Donald Trump, you know, the, is that, that feels different to me the, the, the way that Texas has, that po- all politics feel national now. It's kind of the opposite of what people say. Is that, is that, would you would you agree with that assessment?
2: Yeah, and I I can't quite figure out exactly what I think the genesis of it is. You know, there was a there was a long period of time where the you know the country would be doing X Y Z, and Texas would be counter cyclical in some way. Something else would be going on here. Sometimes they were in line. You know, the Reagan Democrats. Uh, were a big deal in Texas, so when that shift was going on, the beginning of the shift from Democratic supremacy to Republican supremacy in kind of the state's business community, but a lot of this stuff started running in time, and I don't know if that's because Texas began falling in line with national politics as Texas governors became more and more interested in being presidents, or if the deal was that Texas became more of a bellwether state for the rest of the country. It's hard to tell whether the country's following us or we're following them. But some issues, you know, just sort of changed. Like George Bush ran for president, and John McCain from Arizona had just run for president before that. And they were the first two guys who sort of took border Republican politics to New Hampshire and Iowa and got. Skunked. I mean, they went up there and they were, you know, both um, sort of pro-amnesty and pro-trade and pro-Nafta at the time, and they went to all these places and the and they came back with the virus of you know don't let those people in the country, and that has become the the setting now even for Texas politicians. It used to be that Texas politicians and Arizona politicians and California and New Mexico had a much more local view of this and viewed mexico more as part of this community and just a neighbor and went off and came back with xenophobia
3: isn't it also the case ross that one big change from then to now is that there used to be two functioning parties in texas and now there's one functioning party the republican party can be whatever it wants to be it can be as far out there as it wants to be in large part because the democratic party effectively has ceased to exist here there is no opposition so there are no consequences
2: Yeah, and there's also something in common with when we were a democratic majority state, there were two democratic parties then. There were the people that were the Ralph Yarboroughs and the people that were the John Connollys, and basically that was the Liberals and the Conservatives, and now you've got a Republican Party that's at least two parties. You know, if you watch their primaries, there might be three parties in there, but but in terms of, you know, two different parties with two different labels, that was actually a relatively short period, but it was really interesting competition.
1: Well how much of that is the way that politics has kind of sorted itself. I mean, would you say Texas is a more conservative state now or is it just that now all the conservatives are Republicans and all the liberals are Democrats, whereas the concept of a conservative Democrat existed in 1988?
2: I generally think that's right. I don't think the ideology of the state changed all that much. But I also think that the way that the place has sorted out and the way that turnout works in primary elections and the way that redistricting works has made the Republican Party more representative of the most conservative Republicans than of mainstream Republicans and the Democratic Party to the, to a certain extent the same thing. Only 17.5% of the voters showed up in March and they are the most fervent people in both parties and in particular the Republican Party is being ruled by its most conservative. Strain, And it shows up not only in legislative politics and congressional politics, but at the top of the food chain. You know, Dan Patrick's probably the leading uh, movement conservative or however you want to label that in the state right now.
4: Yeah, it feels like it's it's not so much how people are sorting themselves, but it's how we are being sorted by those in power. And the idea of who actually, whose votes and whose ideals and whose positions actually matter aren't, equal and they're not the same as they were when you started all of this, in part because the way these districts were set up were not the same either. Right,
3: right. But, but of course I, I still come back to this idea, and, and Ross, you're the institutional memory here, you'll tell me I'm wrong if I'm wrong, but I have this sense that when the Democrats ran things they pretty much were about being in power, keeping power, incumbency protection, they drew districts that were to advantage Democrats. Right. You know, you can criticize Alexa all of us can criticize the way that the apparatus of politics right now is redrawing districts to the advantage of those in power and how they're sorting all of us as a consequence of that. But the Democrats did a version of this before. Democrats have short memories when they complain about Republicans doing it. The system sucks. It sucked when Democrats ran it it sucks when republicans
4: oh, my rebel. statement is a bipartisan statement yeah. to right. be yeah, i think, this that's, is this is I think that's both sides
3: are terrible that is truly well, bipartisan i think that's
2: right. right but you know if you look at this on the timeline the democrats were working under a much greater set of restraints because we had an effective voting rights act at the time and now we don't have a, now we an don't, effective right. voting rights so it's act. totally
3: you know totally un you know unaffected um, by anything outside of texas they we can were, do what they want
2: and we right. were also still doing it largely with crayons and and you know the the specific door to door politics that you can employ in a redistricting map now just the technology change is astonishing and you know you, you know once we had a decision out of Pennsylvania that you could go across the street and cut out a candidate's house and you know you did this and you did that and you got all this case law and it began to be much fuzzier lines and the republicans happened to be in power when it was time to take advantage of that and they have
4: And, and obviously this is also coming, you know, the demographics of this state today are very different than when you first came to Austin. And so it's, you are, there's a shift in power. There's a shift in the oversight of that power through the Voting Rights Act. And at the same time, the demographics continue to change in ways that have become problematic for Republicans. You know, we saw what they did in the suburbs and, you know, these were communities that were largely in some cases built out of white flight. And all of a sudden they're trending against Republicans. Yes, in part because of college educated white people, white women in particular, but also because the suburbs themselves have diversified. And so the, the, all of this, it's not like it's It's all happened with the same population that we were talking about 30, 40 years ago.
2: A lot of the suburbs weren't even here. The population when I came here- that's true. The the, the population (laughs) when I came to Austin in 1989 was 16, well, it was 17 million people. Now it's 29.1. They're all living in, you know, I mean, most of those are living in cities and suburbs and in the triangle of Dallas, Fort Worth, Austin, San Antonio, and Houston.
1: Okay, so, we have talked about these changing demographics for a long time. I mean, I I before we came in here, I went back to Google when Battleground Texas started, <laughs> which I believe was ah, yes, 3 years <laughs> into the Tribune. Maybe, you know, the the tri- when the Tribune started, Battleground Texas had even started. And we went through this whole kind of phase, right, of it's only a matter of time or this is, you know, this right. this big change is coming. Maybe kind of reaching its peak and like I don't know July 2020 when people were talking about whether b- Biden could win Texas, and then you know here we are. The Republicans still control basically every important office uh, state from a statewide perspective at least, but the demographics keep changing. Are you surprised to be retiring right now? In the situation yes. we, <laughs> 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 all right, in, in the podcast, yeah, there we go. In in the situation where we are in this continued one party dominance, or did everyone just get this, not everyone, I mean, did, did a lot of people just get this wrong over the last five years?
2: I think there was an assumption that all the people who weren't voting were going to vote like the people who were voting. And that, you know, if you increased the population of the state Hispanics that was typically or historically or recently voting 60 to 65 percent for Democrats, there was a lot of people, there were a lot of people assuming in politics and out, that well if you increase that population you increase the size of that democratic vote and there's an assumption in there that they're going to vote just like their predecessors and their parents and you know people vote their wallets more than they vote you know demographics and i mean there are a lot of things that changed at the same time the other thing that happened or one of the other things that happened is the democrats assumed that and stopped contending and the republicans decided they were losing ground and decided to work on it and you know, we've seen some of the effects of that, you know, the places in Texas that have gotten a lot of headlines from us and others about, you know, these are Hispanic areas that are going Republican, they're actually going less Democratic, they're not, you know, for the most part, it's not a straight up Republican vote, it's more of a a smaller margin for the Democrats, but, you know, it's not surprising if you look at the economics on the border and you look at, you know, how they're benefiting and where they're benefiting and under whose management they're benefiting, you know, things are pretty good and they're voting for incumbents.
3: Of course, I come back again to the question of the incompetence of the Democrats here. I I take the under in any conversation about the Hispanic community becoming more conservative politically. We've had one election cycle in which the Democrats largely did not show up for the election and the Republicans did. Let's talk after the 2022 election where theoretically both parties will show up. Let's see if what happens in 22 replicates what happened in 20. I'm just—I'm skeptical. I think there's a lot of messaging about Hispanics voting for Republicans, and indeed, the evidence is there in the form of the results in 2020. But I'd like to see this happen in a second election cycle before I pronounce this. I think the Democrats blew the last election in lots of ways that we'll be reconstructing and talking about for years, and that that may have been as much of the reason for what we saw in South Texas as anything.
4: I think there have been this sort of, sort of a series of. Assumptions and overgeneralizations. There were all these assumptions that the state was going to grow and that because it was gonna grow that that would translate to better margins for the Democrats. But you can't make that assumption if you don't look at the components of that growth, right? How much of it is from immigration and within that immigration, how much is domestic and how much is international? Half of our growth, at least pre-pandemic was because people were having babies here. Babies can't vote. And so this idea that like a growing population would immediately translate into different politics is sort of nonsensical. And I think on the overgeneralization side, you know, when you look at these border communities, there are more people, there are more Hispanic people living in some suburban areas than there are in some of these Hispanic towns that people think of on the border. And so I think that there are all these sort of overgeneralizations and assumptions that we kind of keep coming back to. And unless you sort of break down and think of all those sort of components of change, we're going to be stuck yeah. in this, like, endless cycle of, of this. And, and
3: to Alexa's point about the domestic migration to Texas, the people coming from California are not wavy gravy. They're libertarian tech bros who voted yes to recall Gavin Newsom, and they fled California for that reason. They're not coming here to make us more liberal They're coming here because this place is as conservative as they are. The assumption that Californians coming to Texas is somehow going to make Texas more like California. No, not these Californians.
1: Well, and also if you have the economic mobility to be able to move states, chances are you are in a demographic that tends to lean more Republican than Democratic. Uh, But I would
3: also argue that there's a, a geography, Trump's demography piece of this. If you look at the way the vote broke down in 2020, rural Texas saved Donald Trump's ass, the way that rural Texas had saved Ted Cruz's and Ken Paxton's ass in 2018. Democrats do not know how to talk to rural Texans, period. And in the absence of that, rural Texas is gonna turn out to vote in numbers that will overwhelm any advantages Democrats have in the cities and in South Texas and the suburbs. That's what happened last time.
1: I, I do think that there is a trend line that maybe isn't as steep as we thought it would was, but you know, the, the hugely disappointing 2020 election for Texas Democrats was a six point victory for Donald Trump you know, Wendy Davis in 2014 would have loved to lose by six points. And, and and maybe it's not happening as quickly as we thought, and it's still going to be influenced by national situations, right? I think I think we can all agree that 2022 is not looking great for the Democrats, but maybe what would be best for the statewide Democrats' chance of winning in the future would be a Donald Trump retaking the presidency in 2024 and having a midterm election, you know, similar to what we're seeing right now in 2022, where the backlash is against the party that's in power. I mean, I think, I think it can simultaneously be true that maybe the battleground Texas folks got a little bit ahead of themselves, while also the trends that they saw to their advantage might be ticking Texas in a different direction than it originally was. You know?
4: I do also, Ross. I'm curious how you are sort of thinking about this because I think the other component to a lot of these conversations that we don't really talk about overtly is sort of the voting culture and and I guess in Texas the lack of voting culture and and I know that often people sort of chalk that up to sort of voter apathy but at the same time you know putting kind of voting rules and restrictions aside if you live in a district where your vote literally does not matter because it's been drawn right. to favor the other party you are not instilling a culture of voting that then can play out to cause some of these changes and I'm curious how you have been thinking about that at all because I know we I have I think challenged both of both you and Evan on the apathy part of this but it really seems like it's a culture of voting and how, how have you if at all seen that change improve or worsen while you've been covering this
2: well it's worsened I'm you know and and I think that the primaries used to be relatively less important than they are now and you didn't used to choose all of the candidates in March. You chose nominees in March, and you chose elected officials in November. Now you choose elected officials in March, and November is just a, you know, ring around the posy. And you know there are only, I think it's five districts on the new maps in the Texas House, 150 seats, only five districts. Um, there are only five districts where statewide Republicans and statewide Democrats were less than 10 points apart in the last election. Those, they're just not going to be contested in November. And until you convince people that, you know, A, you've got to vote in March, and B, you know, one of the things the Republicans did to the Democrats when the Democrats had the majority was they started voting in Democratic primaries. That's where the race was. So they started going over and saying, look, I'm just going to vote in this. And they moderated, uh, from their standpoint, the Democrats, and eventually turned the state red. And, you know, at some point in here, the Democrats and the Republicans are going to start gaming each other's primaries. And I, you know, think that probably, you know, one way forward uh, is going to be to get people turning out in March and really contesting elections there since the maps make November less meaningful.
1: That's been the great mystery to me as someone who, who has watched Texas politics for you know, a shorter time than you. But why has there never been, there's so many people that kind of, a lot in some ways throw away their votes in Democratic primaries each year where they could influence you know, who our next Attorney General is going to be or, or some other but,
3: thing. But I, I think, Matthew, that you, we, not you, the royal you, mm-hmm. we, mm-hmm. overstate the impact of Democrats making mischief yeah. in Republican primaries. I don't know that Democrats voting in a Republican, I mean, r- remember yeah, I, when— I, I th- think they're not doing that, well, well, and I think but that's— exactly. been, but, I, but, but I'm, think, I'm actually going But I think they back, have the capability I'm to do I'm going back it. to 2014 when you had a four-way primary for Lieutenant Governor between Jerry Patterson, Todd Staples, David Dewhurst, and Dan Patrick, and Democrats gleefully said at that time, at least I know some who did, I'm gonna vote in the Republican primary for Lieutenant Governor because Letitia Depute's gonna be our nominee. She's not gonna have any competition. So I'm gonna vote in the Republican primary for this Dan Patrick, because that guy can't possibly win. And so if we vote for him- Always a winning argument. Right, if we vote for him, <laughs> we'll have a better chance of winning in the fall. How'd that work out for you,
2: right? Right, yeah. Right. You can't you can't really scheme it. You just have to say, look, the best can- the candidate most likely to get a win out of this is a candidate from party X, and then just go over to X party X's primary and vote for the one you like the best, and not some kind of strategic well, see, game stuff. I, 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 I just think,
3: vote for something. Always vote for something. That's what always I'm vo- yeah. Right. Always vote for something you believe in. And by the way, it, it's incumbent then against, uh, 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 back to the party, it's incumbent upon the party to field good candidates. Right. It is basically, in this election cycle, Beto and what? Like just in terms of name ID, in terms of recognizability, in terms of the ability to whip up a crowd. Right. It's, you got a guy at the top and you got no cover for him south of that.
2: That's to some extent how it always goes, though. I mean, you know, why? Why do we? Why
3: do we accept that? Why does the state accept having a a ticket of people you could not identify in a police lineup?
2: Why is that? Well, because you know, you know, I mean, this is like judicial selection. You know, nobody knows the names of the judges. You know, and we vote for them. And if you ask voters, "Hey, do you want to give up that vote?" They say, "Oh, heck, no! I should decide that." You know, and that's why you get, you know, um, as honor Donald Duck.
1: I, I do think that there's been some, you know. There, what's what's my incentive to run if I'm a prominent Democrat uh, to just get trounced and that has maybe not worked out as well? I mean, I remember someone putting Julian Castro on the cover of uh, Texas Monthly uh, it was, a it long was, time ago. It was not me. And he, <laughs> it was not me. Was, wow. was that after you left? It was absolutely after okay, I left. Okay. Okay. But was i that the hot you pad know, you're holding right. there? Really,
3: I, I, I was, the, I was to... the one who published the story saying that the first Hispanic governor of Texas would be Rafael Anchia.
1: Uh-huh. Well, there you go. That
3: goes awesome. back a lot farther. But you know what? The thing is, if you don't run, I can guarantee you you won't win. Yeah. And if and you do run, ways- you might win. But if you don't run, I can guarantee you you won't win.
1: Right, right. Right? Okay, Ross, so I want to ask, uh, who is the most skilled politician you've covered in Texas over this time?
2: It depends on what you're talking about. You know, the there were two that were...
1: Well, And let me tell you, my next question is going to be the most skilled politician political tactician in terms of running power. That's part
2: of my answer. So, I, you know, um, disclosure, I worked for John Sharp Mm -hmm. for um, two and a half years from 96 to 98 and he is as good an inside player as anybody I've ever seen in politics. Um, He's, you know, if you give, you know, like the tax bill Rick Perry had to pass, you know, Sharp is really good at sort of maneuvering all of that stuff, getting everything lined up and then pouncing. Um, Rick Perry, Who was not good at that inside stuff, is as good at outside stuff as anybody I've ever seen. And in fact, I, you know, I, I think one of the best um, political instinct moves I've ever seen was in 2009 on tax day. Rick Perry at City Hall in Austin, being the first politician who really caught the smell of the Tea Party, and saw that movement and saw that go. And I think that was, you know, that's. A larval stage of what became the Trump movement. You know, it was kind of a late stage of the old Ross Perot stuff, but Rick Perry s- sensed that in that crowd, and his politics turned about ninety degrees in a very intelligent way, in a very, uh, you know, interesting way to watch. If, you know, sort of like watching this as, a, as petri dishes. Uh, if you could have gotten both of those guys into one politician, you would have had a president. But, but, you know, Sharp wasn't as good at the outside game, and. Perry wasn't as good at the inside game.
1: Do you think that the skill set needed to be a successful politician in Texas has changed significantly from the 80s until now?
2: Yeah, you used to have to be better on your feet um, because you were more exposed and you were more exposed to not just press, but also to constituents and to other lawmakers and to other, you know contestants in the public life, right, and you had, to, you had to be on your feet all the time and you had to, you know, um, you were challenged more. Uh, this is much more like corporate America now. This is like, you know, you go off in a boardroom and you decide on what your policy is going to be and you decide on a marketing plan and you don't talk to anybody and you just kind of go along. One of the things that's interesting about that is whenever you see politicians get caught out doing something right now, you know, just I shouldn't have done that, I made a mistake, It's a much more upsetting thing to them and to their campaigns and to their retinues than it used to be. It used to be you would just sort of like, you know, slap your head and say, well, I screwed up. Because you were used to that sort of rough and tumble, they're not really used to it now. And it runs more like, you know, an insurance company making a mistake than a politician making a mistake.
1: Interesting. I mean, I feel like, though, we've kind of reached a point where your mistakes you can just kind of turn them into victories anyway. I mean, I think, you know... Kevin McCarthy. Exactly, exactly. Or, you know... Right. uh, Right. I I mean...
2: But if you make a true mistake, if Kevin McCarthy had made a a big mistake like um, following through with what he said, you know, that would have been a different kind of a thing. I I also think that, you know, there... And I don't want to overstate this because I think most people in politics at a high level, and I would call... Statewide politics in Texas, a high level, are good at a very difficult game. Um, You know, very difficult kind of profession, and but they've got you know they're not in a they're not in a mode right now. I mean, this is sort of a pet peeve of mine. They're not in a mode right now where they're doing big stuff and and where they're playing for keeps and saying, I always wanted to be in this office so that I could do this big thing. And then really nothing else matters to me. They're playing small ball all the time, nationally and in
1: the state. All right. So um, one more rapid fire question, since you brought up John Sharp, who was the bigger pain in the ass to work for, John Sharp or Evan Smith? Oh me!
3: Oh completely me! Come on. Yeah, completely say Evan me. Smith. Yeah, say me. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. Although I, I, you know, I, I, I handled one for 28 months, and I handled the other one for 13 years. You may draw your own
1: conclusions. Very <laughs> good. All right, let's, let's pause and hear from our sponsors.
2: Texas State
0: Technical College's Money Back Guarantee Program reinforces our commitment to prepare and place highly skilled, technically competent students in the workforce. Learn more at tstc.edu. And Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute's vision is for Texas to be the national leader in treating all people with mental health needs. Learn more at mmhpi.org.
1: Okay so Ross um you and Evan founded the Tribune in 2009 with John Thornton and with John Thornton. and John Thornton yes um and there was a time uh in 2009 where I managed to email both of you and try to convince you into giving me a job and Are you
3: still better are you still better yes, I, 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 I remember <laughs> him showing up and I was like Who's this like breadstick with feet who shows up in our office this little skinny marink shows up he's like 5 years old wants a job get him out of here Yeah well you know right.
1: I, this this isn't the reason I brought it up but I you know I, do do I take pleasure in now being here you know seeing you out the door yes yes in fact no. I do wow, <laughs> Well fine I turn not
2: turn, this turn, about his, turn about it turn about fair play right Yeah, yeah.
1: Exactly. fine No no th- so the reason the reason I bring, bring that up is cuz I remember Something I actually think it was in your office, Evan. One of the questions I asked in my interview was, you know, trying to get an idea of what this was and what it was going to be. And I asked the question of, um, "Are y'all going to be on the bus with the campaigns?" Which at the time I thought was a smart question, and now in retrospect seems incredibly naive because of how politicians, the relationship between the media and the press now. I mean. Now, these days we're lucky if we even are advised about campaign events that are right. going on, right. as opposed to you know I, I see the pictures of the Austin press Corps you know going on fishing trips and hunting trips with Ann Richards and you know whoever else put in that um, in that list. Right. Is that a good thing or a bad thing the The separation between the the media and the politicians
2: I think it's a bad thing. I think you know they. I mean, this is kind of what I was referring to a minute ago, you need to be tested and you need to be in the back and forth, not just with the press, also with other politicians and there were more times when you would see candidates sparring with other candidates and, you know, you're ultimately fighting over the ideas, you know, that's how you decide whether you're going to, you know, the, the 1990 governor's race is why we got a state lottery, the, you know, you see them going back and forth and you know we had in that race uh, Jim Maddox started that race as at one time he was a Baptist seminarian and he still had that that streak and was sort of you know had that a kind of a Puritan streak but then he hired a guy named James Carville and a guy named Paul Begala who had just won a Kentucky governor's race with Zell Miller on the lottery and all of a sudden Jim Maddox was the lottery guy um, you know you had all of this contention in there and I think you know I think that's really interesting. And they had the press in the middle of it needling them with pesky questions. And uh, Carvel and Begala quit that campaign and <laughs> Maddox lost it. Richards went on and started a lottery.
3: I mean, I, I guess we don't have people on the bus as a matter of course these days. I will say that Patrick Svitek joining the Tribune to trail Ted Cruz around the country during the 2016 presidential campaign is close to that.
2: Jay Root got a book out of the Perry Jay campaign. Jay Root got a
3: book out of the Perry campaign. Like, I don't yeah. think that's. We, it's, don't, it's, we haven't gone completely away from right. candidates on, existentially, the bus. Um, but it's clearly very different
2: now. Right. We don't go out for two weeks at a time with right. a whole, you know. Remember the story that Wayne Slater
3: used to tell, speaking of traveling with the campaigns, Wayne Slater used to tell the story of going on the campaign trail with David Dewhurst when he was lieutenant governor and flying into Lubbock late one night, and the candidate, the candidate and the campaign staff and the press corps goes to the El Phoenix in Lubbock because it was the only thing open. Dewhurst sits down and asks for a wine list, right? <laughs> Which to me is as is, is representative of who Dewhurst was, told you everything you need to know about Dewhurst. Right. That's a moment that you don't get today because yeah. candidates and campaigns and the press corps are not going to the El Phoenix
2: together in Lubbock at 11 o'clock or whatever it was. Right. And, and the campaigns don't do this because of, you know, another, you know, in one of those races, Clady Williams was. With a group of reporters that I was with um, on the last Friday before the November election, and offhandedly told us he didn't pay income taxes during the oil crash in the mid 80s. And that blew up what was left of his campaign. And, you know, I think all of the consultants who came out of that campaign said, don't ever put your campaign, your guy on a train with the reporters on the last weekend again.
3: Right. In the same way that we don't have people traveling with candidates, we also don't have newspaper. Editorial board interviews to the same degree that we once upon a time did. Like the whole culture of this stuff. I mean, this is really the thirteen-year difference, it right? Does, it does change. It's changed.
1: Yeah, I don't. I don't see any. You know, I don't see Dan Patrick's campaign inviting Alexa Hunting. I think that would. be a, <laughs> I think that would
4: Sorry, be outsta- that, that would be an outstanding image story, of wouldn't the, it? <laughs> on its own, or, Not or unless anywhere. she had a target on her back, or I'm anyway, afraid. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly.
1: Exactly. Yeah. But I mean, you know, I, I think, and I know you. Uh, dispute this like popular characterization, but when, you know, in some of the like popular history we talk about with the Ann Richards, Clady Williams campaign was that there were these events like him not shaking her hand after one of the debate that really helped swing the race. And it's just hard for me to imagine, even if that happened now, that it would be that big of a deal. It it just seems like the way things are covered in, in a lot of ways, it may be in a good thing. It's more focused on policies and the impact of the things that we're doing than, than that kind of, like, you know, traveling around, getting, getting a great sense of them.
2: I, I think the campaigns that are most valuable to voters are the campaigns that have a lot of open conflict. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be nasty, but it has to be a fight over something. It has to be a fight over ideas. And, you know, part of it, I mean, you know, and i like to say that voters are drawn to a car wreck but but part of it is when something that voters care about is being contested you know you saw in the race between beto orourke and ted cruz some ideas where people were saying look this is one view of this and this is a completely different view of this and you've got these sort of compelling personalities they're both willing to mix it up and you're actually voting on something and you could go to you know like a regular voter and say what do you think this race is about and get a pretty intelligent answer by the end of it. It wasn't just, well, I like that guy's name better. And too many of these seem to me to be like a Nintendo game, where you just like, I like the red one, or I like the blue one. And you know, I I just think the best politics and the best government really comes out of um, people really being engaged in an idea and in a
1: fight over an idea. What does the media get wrong about Texas politics and government?
2: Well, Alexa talked about it a minute ago. This isn't one state. This is just there's a lot of things going on here.
4: I thought you were going to say I just get everything <laughs> wrong for a <laughs> <Yes>. second there.
2: <laughs> well, Different Which conversation, right? No, I, you know, you, the generalizations are where all the, you know, where a lot of the mistakes are. You know, there's always some kind of angle. Nobody is a hundred percent Republican, and nobody is a hundred percent Democratic. And we, you know, we play at the edges of this, and we forget what the middle is, you know, and and what people are really, you know, worried about and talking about, except when there's something that really just rears its head and shoves all the small stuff aside—a pandemic, or a market crash, or something like that, where everybody's attention is riveted on something, and you get out the noise. Usually, the signal-to-noise ratio is terrible, and we are sometimes not very good at sorting it out.
1: So are we, when I say we, I don't mean necessarily just the Tribune or this group, but the the media in general, are we too tough, not tough enough, or just about right on how we cover these politicians?
2: I don't think it's a matter of toughness. I think it's a matter of thoughtfulness. And, you know, why are we writing about this? What's the, you know, there's a, when I was at the Times-Herald, there was a, I don't know which editor this came from, but it became sort of a standard thing. You know, in journalism, you have a lead that's the top of a story. How do you get them into the story? And then you have a nut graph, which is here's what this story is about. And then there was a big push there at that time that I've always had in my head for the so what graph, which is the, yeah, this is what this is about. Here's my fancy lead, and here's why I'm telling you this, and here's why this fits. And and a lot of political coverage doesn't have a so what paragraph or a so what thought. You know, and we just cover. You know, well, they had another shootout at the SD 17 corral, and and don't get into the. And here's why I'm telling you that.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, and, and as I was asking that question, I was remembering I was talking to some people on Wednesday um, about working with the media, and my number one piece of advice was, the media is not a monolithic. Right. same it's each publication is different, and within that publication, the editors and the reporters are all individuals too. So uh, Well, and the
2: thing that you know we never really talk about you know much outside of newsrooms is you know newsrooms are just like everything else. There's somebody in your newsroom who really is better than everybody else, and there's somebody in your newsroom that's not as good. And sometimes when people are forming their ideas about the media in general, it could be one newsroom, it could be a whole press corps, they're forming it around the worst member. And somebody goes out and screws up. And like a lot of industries, we don't do a lot of our own cleanup.
1: OK. I'm not going to ask who that worst member is of the media. But <laughs> don't anybody
2: make eye contact with anybody right now.
1: <laughs> Very good. OK, well, that is around all the time we have. Um, so I will just say, you know, as much as I joked about any kind of smug satisfaction I have, that is not actually true. I, uh, you are still bitter though about not <laughs> still Well, you know.
2: Well, you got the job eventually. <laughs> That's, right. <laughs> That's right. We knew what we were doing, we, it it's worked out. Yeah,
1: it, indeed, it did, it worked out for the best. But um, I will say personally, I, I'm extremely grateful for everything you did, both in helping with Evan and John Thornton, creating this place that I think has done a lot of great for, Texas and just personally for me it's been a uh, you know a great pleasure and I know that I personally have learned a lot um, from you not just how to be a journalist but also how to be a journalist while also being a very decent and kind and helpful and generous person so thank you so much for that
2: Well, thanks for that I appreciate it
3: whereas Alexa and I can't wait for you
2: to be gone
4: yeah we're we're already (laughs) moving into your office
2: stealing my books it's great
4: (laughs) yeah
1: right I didn't get to go to the goodbye party, so this was my opportunity to say that. All right. don't, don't be a
3: stranger.
2: I won't. Come, so back, come back anytime. I will. I might come back and do a podcast.
1: All right. That sounds great. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, this podcast without Ross will continue, and we'll be back next week. Thank you, Ross. Thank you, Alexa and Evan. Thank you to the, our sponsors, the Eller Group, Raise Your Hand Texas, Texas State Technical College, and Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute. We'll talk to you all next week.